Go ahead and open up to John 12. John chapter 12, continuing our study in the Gospel of John. We're making our way. Next week we'll be in chapter 13. Um, though it's a little past the halfway point, we are heading towards the, uh, the, the ultimate point of John's Gospel, being Jesus and his, his crucifixion and resurrection. So we're headed that way. John 12. We're going to look at verses 12, excuse me, 20 through 50. I'm not going to read the whole thing, though, in the interest of time. But we'll start there in verse 20. John 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Note that. We wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal, excuse me, to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have gathered tonight as your ecclesia, knowing and believing that in our gathering, in our worship, in our remembrance of the covenant, that you will strengthen us and give us what we need each and every day. We ask and pray that your word would strike us to the heart and shape us into the image of your Son. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So we have here tonight two different worldviews that come straight into collision with the truth of the gospel, those two worldviews being Jewish religious enthusiasm on the one hand, And you also have Greek intellectual curiosity on the other hand. And the kingdom of God deals with both of them. Why? Because the way of the kingdom is the cross. We know that. And the cross, we know, is scandalous to the Jewish mind. It's completely scandalous to the Jewish mind. A crucified Messiah, right? But it's also, for the other group, it is foolish and absurd to the Greek mind. The cross is a foolish thing. It's absurd to the Greek giants of philosophy, as Paul basically tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. So recall to mind, back in John 4, the confession of the Samaritans, when they said to the woman of the well, they said this, It is no longer because what have you said that we believe. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. That's what the Samaritans confessed, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, of course, that's no small confession here, and we shouldn't treat it as such. 
we have here Jewish half-breeds despised by the conservative constituency of the Jewish religion, and they see the truth about Jesus, and they confess the truth about Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. And then we have these same religious leaders Jesus has been dealing with his entire ministry saying that the whole world has gone after him. If you remember that from verse 19. And they're right. <laughs> the whole world is going after Jesus. Remember the context of the passage, where we're at in the story. It's the biggest week of the Jewish religion. The biggest week. It's the Super Bowl of Super Bowls. Um, Passover is at hand. And not only do you have covenantal Jews coming in from the nations and the diaspora, they're coming into Jerusalem, millions of them. They're coming in to celebrate the Exodus event. You also, though, have God-fearers. You have God-fearers who are not Jewish people. They have come, these Greeks, these Gentiles, who have some semblance of faith in the God of Israel, some circumcised, some not, some taken on the covenant, some not. But they fear God, they respect the God of Israel, and all of them have now descended upon Jerusalem. And to make matters even more exciting about this amazing celebratory festival, Jesus of Nazareth is there, and he's talking to people. He's quite literally the front page of the news stories. He's on the news cycle 24-7. Jesus of Nazareth is at the Passover meal. He's the talk of the nation. Everybody wants to see him. So people from every nation, though, want to see Jesus. The world is chasing after him, and the leaders are absolutely correct. So for the Greeks, the, the Greeks come, and they ask for more than they bargain for. In verse 21, right in front of you, see, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus, they said. This is a great statement to make, a phenomenal question of all questions to ask. The Greeks, they find Philip, which is a Greek name, somebody they, they could have related to, and they use him as a point of contact. And so Philip and Andrew, they get a hold of Jesus. They go tell him, look, people are wanting to talk to you. And then, of course, Jesus responds to them and the crowd that's gathered. And his response is very, very simple. You can look at it in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. A most peculiar response indeed. You want to see me, Jesus says. You want to see me. You want to see what I'm about. You want to, you want to see me in all my glory. Well, pay close attention. Because the only way to see me and what I'm doing with my Father is to see me glorified in the hour which has been prepared for me. And that is the hour of my death, the hour of my death on the cross, and then and only then you can see me. You want to see Jesus, that's where you have to look. You have to see the bloody cross. So Jesus explains what he's doing, and he pulls from the very creation that he made. He says in verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. That is, it's, it's a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Why in the world would Jesus bring this up? Well, here's the point he's making. In other words, Jesus' life is like a seed. It's like a seed. He won't accomplish what he has set out to accomplish if the seed doesn't do what the seed is supposed to do, namely, go into the ground and die. That's what seeds do. 
You bury them symbolically. It's a symbolism of death. You bury them in the ground. They're alone by themselves, and they die. That's, that's how Jesus views his work. That's how he sees what he's doing. The, the created order illustrates quite literally what Jesus is doing, what his life is about. And, and apart from death, his life is in isolation. There's no power for yielding an increase. There's no real power in only Christ's life. We need his death. We need his death. You see, for, for Jesus, this is his theology. Death means fruitfulness for the world. That's, his, that's how this is translated. Death means fruitfulness for the world. Death means that he can then produce a harvest. Death means that he can accomplish the great victory of all the prophets that had promised it. He can accomplish all of, all of Old Testament history, all that they had predicted, namely the salvation of the world. That's the goal of the gospel, the salvation of the world. See, if the Greeks want to see Jesus, they need to see him as the seed who is planted in the ground. They need to see him as the seed planted in the ground who will then burst forth into the harvest of the nations, and that is only done through resurrection victory. See, even in the Old Testament, we have a great commission. We don't often think of it in those terms. We just, you know, Matthew 28, that's a New Testament thing. It's not. It's actually an Old Testament thing as well. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be wisdom in the sight of the nations, Deuteronomy 4. They were supposed to follow God's law word and love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that was in turn going to reflect God's glory out into the world, and the nations would then stream to them. They would come, and they would want to know about the wisdom of this God that they serve. See, they were called to worldwide evangelism and dominion as well. That was their task too. But because many had forsaken the faith, because they had chosen instead to go about things their own way, God moved forward in history without covenant breakers. God judges covenant breakers in history. And, but history doesn't stop. It keeps going because he is faithful and he is true. And all that history, all that history, the thousands of years, all the history of Moses and Abraham, the, the patriarchs, all of that comes rushing forward in this great climactic moment, this hour of Jesus' death. The great promises of worldwide dominion for the Messiah was now coming to Jesus right here, right now. This is the hour. All of that was coming to him. See, God was becoming king. The Messiah was given dominion over the nations. Thousands of years of covenantal history and faithfulness climaxes in the hour of Jesus' death. And listen, the only way for the world to experience the transformational blessings of God is for Jesus to be planted like a seed. That's what he's teaching us. That's the only way that the, the, that's the, only way the nations are going to get the blessing of the gospel is for Jesus to go to the cross, for him to be planted like a seed. You see, you do not get a harvest without planting seeds. You don't get a harvest without planting seeds. And the same principle goes for the gospel message. The seed of worldwide gospel blessing must include the death of Christ. That's what he's saying. And here's why. New humanity 
which supplants the old humanity can only flourish when the old humanity dies. New humanity, which supplants the old humanity, can only flourish when the old humanity dies. The promise is true. To dust you shall return. To dust man must go. And only when the old man dies can the new man live. That's part of the principle here. Only when the covenantal order that was vested in the old humanity, vested in Adam, only when that perishes can this new humanity, this new creation under the covenantal order that's vested now in the second Adam, only then can it be fruitful. Adam and everything he represents has to go. Jesus, the second Adam, then comes and he replaces it. See, look at verses 25 and 26. He drives the point home. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, what the gospel teaches us is that there's this unique, decisive, and final action of one man in which the one through whom all things were created and who is the one who sustains and brings life, his life was freely given to an undeserving human race. See, if that is what was required to secure our salvation, why would we expect something different as a pattern for sanctification? In other words, if Christ had to go to the cross to save you, why is it that then we would graduate from the cross and build on some other foundation in our sanctification? You can't. It doesn't work. See, if the Greeks who come to Jesus wish to truly see Jesus Christ, they're going to have to really see. They're going to have to really go to the cross and see Jesus there. And not just see him, but participate in it. Right? To the cross. They need to participate in his cross. They need to participate in the tomb. They need to participate in the resurrection life. That's the pattern. See, for us, death, death is, a lot of philosophers have talked about death and destruction and this world we live in. And they try to, uh, you know, whether it's the platonic dualism of Greek philosophy where, you know, the material world is bad, the spiritual world is good. So death is, a, is just us getting rid of the bad stuff, and then we get to experience the high life, the nirvana of Buddhism and the like. But that's not what Christian theology is. Death is not simply this natural event devoid of any meaning in a random universe, unless, of course, you know, life itself is just a product of the natural world. But to the contrary, see, in God's world, death is this visible sign and instrument of God's judgment upon all of our lives and all of our works. That basically saying that they're not simply, they're not fit for eternity. The death isn't just this random thing that occurs. It's, it's not just this random thing in this Darwinian universe that we have going on. See, death is actually the outward judgment of sin. That's what it is. That's why when and Paul says that um, he, be, he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus became sin on the cross. And he took on that death in order to defeat death, which means, he says, if you love your life more than the kingdom, you will lose it. If you love your life more than the kingdom of God, you will lose it. If your love for the kingdom is so strong that it looks like that you hate your own life, 
that is the self-emptying sacrificial service, you have eternal life. That's the mark of Christianity. That's, this is the pattern for seeing Jesus. If you want to see Jesus, this is what you have to see. This is the pattern for worldwide blessing as well. If you serve Christ, you must follow Christ. In, other, in, in order to get Christ, to see Him, to have Him as your Savior, to follow Him as your Lord, you will not only be with Him, Jesus says you will be with His Father. If you look in your Bible there, verse 27, we get this John's version of the passion of Christ. His hour is here and his soul is troubled. But in John's Gospel, he's not in the Garden of Gethsemane um, sweating as though it was blood, this intense moment. It's, it's really not that. In John's version, Jesus understands that, yeah, his soul is troubled, but what shall be done? What is he supposed to do? Should he forsake his father? No, <laughs> he shouldn't. In fact, verse 28 says, Father, glorify your name. See, glory is at stake here. Glory is at stake here. Glory is at stake in this whole thing, in Jesus' whole gospel ministry. Glory is the central focus. Jesus has to be glorified. Jesus has to be honored. Jesus has to be given supremacy. And yet, he's not by the religious leaders, right? He's not by those who oppose him. He's not honored the way he should be honored. He's not glorified and given supremacy the way he should be. And then we have this weird thing take place in verse 28. There's this audible voice that comes from heaven in response to Jesus' short prayer. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then this voice comes from heaven. He says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, some people are there and they think it's an angel. Um, others think that it's thunder. But Jesus tells them it was a voice from heaven for their sake. And this glory, this seed of worldwide blessing is not for the casual observer. It's for your sake. You see, follow him or kill him, but you will not be permitted to simply observe him. Follow him or kill him. Those are the options. You won't be permitted to just see him at a distance. You, you won't be permitted to just gawk at him while he's on the cross and not be moved either way. You will either celebrate his death in an unrighteous way, or you will celebrate it in a righteous way because you will then see what it really is. See, that's the glory. And part of the glory is the judgment upon this world. And, and this is a beautiful passage, the casting out of the ruler of this world. That is Satan. Satan's covenantal rule of the world and the blinding of the nations is now gone. He's been cast out. He, the, Jesus has bound him. He's, the strong man has now been binded for, for the glory of God. He's casting him out, and he's doing so, in verse 32, by being lifted up from the earth. Now, that's not the first time we've heard this language from Jesus about him being lifted up from the earth. Um, we know this from earlier, that Jesus is going to be lifted up like the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And this lifting up will be both God's judgment of the world and on Satan, and it's the drawing of men to himself. It's both of those things. Jesus is literally lifted up from the earth on a cross, and in that moment, it's two things. It's judgment on the world and the casting out of Satan, and it's also the drawing of all men from all nations to himself. It's both of those things. But this is entirely scandalous. This, this doesn't comport with human wisdom, right? It isn't supposed to. 
And that's because the gospel doesn't fit into pre-existing worldviews. It destroys them. The gospel doesn't fit into these pre-existing worldviews. The gospel destroys the worldviews. See, the, the crowd objects in verse 34. Note that. If you look at your Bible, note this. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say then the Son of Man must be lifted up? How can you tell? David was in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. He was given this covenant. And his house would last forever. What do you mean he's going to die? They understood the idiom. They knew. What are, you, what are you talking about? Who is the Son of Man anyway? And Jesus teaches them again. He says he's the light among them. They need to walk. They need to walk. That is, they need to see. They need to exercise faith. And they need to do it now so that darkness doesn't come and sin doesn't overtake them. You can't see walking in the dark. It's just, it's, that's how it works. You can only see when it's, there's light. So you can only see life and light when the Jesus, who is the light and who is life, when he gives you that illumination, when he does clearly reveal himself. Now the chapter closes, um, it closes out Jesus' public ministry in his very last week of life, basically by demonstrating from the scriptures that many believed and many did not. Many had believed, but many did not. This is because just like in Isaiah's day, just like in Isaiah's day, people can't and won't believe because God blinds them and they love darkness. Remember all the way back in John 1 and other places? The darkness cannot comprehend the light. People love the darkness because their works were evil. See, this is, of course, that's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole purpose of parables, right? You have God who is intentionally blinding people by parables. It's a judgment on them. And God sovereignly ordains all of their free decisions. <laughs> That's how we should understand predestination and election. See, there's a difficulty in seeing Jesus. Some of the leaders do. Some of the leaders do, but they're scared of the Pharisees. They're scared of being rejected. They don't want to be put out of the synagogue. Well, why? Well, verse, look at verse 43. It tells us why. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They're not God-fearers. They're man-fearers. And Proverbs tells us fear of, a man, fear of man is a trap. Jesus ends his public discourse here. This is, the very, this is it. This is the end of his public discourse. After this, he's going he's to meet with his disciples. He's going to have this beautiful high priestly prayer. And then he's going to die. And this last part of the chapter is the very end of it all, of his public discourse. And he teaches about the unity he has with his father. If you want to see me, you have to have the light of the world. And that means you have to have Jesus. Verse 46. Jesus came to save the world, not to judge it. But he is judging it. Verse 47. And when you reject Christ, you are judged on the last day, he says in verse 48. He and the Father are together in this project of worldwide blessing. Verses 49 and 50. It's not as though they are simply rejecting Jesus. That's, that's the easy part. But what we need to understand is they aren't just rejecting Jesus. They are rejecting the entire order of the kingdom of God as it confronts them in Jesus. They're not just rejecting this naysayer prophet from Nazareth. They are rejecting the kingdom of God. They are turning their backs on the entire order that God is implementing in Jesus Christ. 
Now, keep in mind what we have going on here. Jesus has authority over death. We've already seen this. He's proved it in the raising of Lazarus. And then, of course, he's going to prove it again and enact it in himself, and he rises from the dead. But Jesus came, we know, to spar with death. And while he won the decisive victory, a decisive victory in Lazarus, that hardly constitutes the ingathering of the nations. Just because you raise Lazarus from the dead doesn't mean now the nations are going to stream in and, and there's going to be worldwide blessing. That's not enough. That's not the death we need. We don't need Lazarus' death, and we don't need his being raised to life for salvation. We don't need that. But the ultimate victory was in his own actions, going headlong into death in order to swallow it up in victory through the empty tomb. And Jesus here, he gives us something. He gives us meaning. He gives meaning to the very process of death's defeat. He is the seed that must go into the ground and die for worldwide blessing. See, real fruit production requires death and burial. No farmer goes out to harvest an unplanted seed. You would be a fool. See, a harvest can only come when the lone seed is put into the ground. And what's underneath all of this all of this stuff here is the subversive nature of the gospel. The men who want Jesus dead, they do not realize that they are planting the seed of their own demise. They're planting the seed of their own demise, which is what Paul says later on in Corinthians. He says that if the rulers of this world had known what they were doing, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. They wouldn't have done it. If they knew that their own kingdom was going to be toppled, they wouldn't have done it. They, they would not have planted their own collapse. But they didn't know, and their hatred clouded their judgment. And this is partly why the world, excuse me, the word of the cross is so scandalous to the Jew and why it's so foolishly absurd to the Greek. You cannot take the gospel and co-opt it into something on your own, repackaging it into your own power structure and worldly, worldly wisdom. That's why it doesn't fit. That's why when you talk to the cult leader at you know, first Friday downtown. You can't co-opt the gospel, repackage it, and then try to stuff it into your own worldly power-oriented system. It doesn't work that way. You don't see Jesus this way, more importantly. The seed of the cross is the subversive folly of God. Know that. It's the subversive folly of God which usurps the wisdom of man. And Jesus, uh, Paul says, rather, in Corinthians as well, you know, it's, it's the foolishness of God. It's like, it's worthy of laughter. A crucified Messiah who forgives sin, and not just forgives sin, but changes the entire world? You should snicker at that in the right context. That's the foolishness of God. If that's the foolishness of God, my goodness, what is the wisdom of God? Well, it's the gospel blessing, the worldwide transformation. See, it's this subversive folly. It undercuts all of the wisest of men and undercuts all of them. It rebukes the religious man. It rebukes the prideful religious man. And it humbles the wise philosopher. That's what the gospel does. It lifts, it lifts up the humble housewife and the businessman. That's what it does. It encourages the downtrodden, and it also encourages the depressed. It, 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 um, it encourages the poor. It brings justice to those who cannot experience justice. 
And the reason all of this is the case is because the truth of God cannot be incorporated into a system of meaning which is governed by its own standards and its own rules. We're talking about a seed planted in the ground for worldwide blessing. We're talking about Christ's death, which is absurd and foolish to the world. That's the wisdom, though, of God. That's the foolishness of God and the great wisdom of God. But you can't take that and you can't make it fit your own preconceived notions. You can't bring it into this system of thought and co-opt it. This guy Friday night, wanted he knew some scriptures and he wanted to talk about how Jesus is this great man, but he's trying to co-opt it. He's trying to hijack it and fit it into his own gnarly system of pluralism or whatever it was. See, there has to be this, this crisis of judgment in order for a, a false system to die. There has to be a confrontation. There has to be this moment. And only in death can there be life. And, and all the foolishness of God does is it humbles the wisdom of men. That's the crisis. That's the way out of our self-induced intellectual boxes that we fabricate. And here's the thing. If... If worldwide blessing is going to occur, if this blessing is going to happen in Fauquier County, in Prince William County, in Fairfax, like, if that's going to happen, it's not going to be something that the wisest of philosophers are going to cook up. You don't come up with that type of thing. The, the Plato's and the Aristotle's of the world cannot, in all of their ostensible wisdom, drum up this sort of thing. They can't do it. They don't, no one goes to a dying man on a cross. And why is that? <laughs> because human arrogance fights against the very heart of the gospel. And what's the very heart of the gospel? Self-sacrifice and humble service of God and neighbor. That's worldwide transformation. It's the opposite of the grasping and arrogance of man trying to build their own tower trying to build, make a name for themselves. That's why the gospel is foolish to them, because it undercuts it. It cuts to the heart of man's pride and arrogance. See, Jesus' hour is here. And here, in an act which is the renunciation of all worldly power and all worldly wisdom, is the place to which all of the scattered nations of the earth will be drawn. That's the moment. He says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That's the moment. That's the hour. It's the seed that's planted in such a way as to bring a harvest to the nations. And that's where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will descend. That's where the unity is had. They will look on the crucified and risen Messiah. And that's the thing that unifies men. That's what unifies us. That's the worldwide blessing of the gospel. It brings humility. It brings service. It brings self-sacrifice to a world that knows nothing of those things. See, men, men try to unify mankind under their own preconceived sovereign rule, whether that's you know, communist dictators, conservative fascists, domineering church elders, and heavy-handed patriarchalists. But these rulers are being deposed in Christ who hangs on a tree. That stuff goes away at the cross. That's the moment where their fate was sealed. The kingdom confronts all of the worldly powers and it confronts the lowly peasants too. And we can talk a big talk all day and say, yeah, you know, the, the gospel of the, of the kingdom 
confronts the sadists in D.C. and in Richmond and downtown with, you know, wherever. And we can say that. But you know what? The gospel confronts your arrogance that you had this morning, your pride that you're going to have tomorrow. It topples it all. Because the moment you stop loving and serving God and neighbor is the moment that root of pride and bitterness springs up in your life. The gospel deals with that too. It takes an axe, swings to the root, and it destroys it. See, which that means then we have to deal with this. We have to come to grips with the reality of what's before us. And so I leave you with a question. What kind of fruitful life then do you want? <laughs> I mean, here's, here's the seed of the gospel planted. It was planted in you. It was planted in our church. It's planted in this nation. It's a little awkward at this point on things, but a little, little gnarly. Some bramble bushes have come up and choking the church. Of course, a lot of it's self-induced. But what kind of fruitful life do you want in your family, in your life, in this nation, in our county? What are you, what are you aiming for? Do you, do you want a life of chaos and disorder, a life without vision, a life without passion, a life of man-centered dominionism? Is that the sanctification you want in your life? Or do we want a life that's patterned after Jesus? who exhibits humility at every single turn, who, was, who always takes upon himself the burden of others and never once complains about it. See, if it's dominion in the world that we're after, the seed of worldwide blessing that we're after, if that's true, it's going to start with the seed of self-sacrifice in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of your kids, children. You're not exempt from this. That seed of self-sacrifice and service towards your brother and sister, towards your parents, towards your friends, that's where it has to go. We can talk all day about worldwide blessing, but if it doesn't start with you, it's not going to get anywhere. This daily dying to self and living for God and neighbor, which means that we have to repent. We have to repent of our selfishness. We have to repent of our man-centered thinking. Repent of our fake humility. Repent of our phony spirituality. We're actually going to have to repent of our repentance because a lot of times our repentance isn't even that great. You see, instead of all that, though, we're going to have to be humbled. And the way we do that is seeing Jesus on His terms not the terms you've concocted in your mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are absolutely humbled, absolutely humbled by the life of Jesus, who in every way exhibited to us true humility and sacrifice. We confess that oftentimes we are a stiff-necked, rebellious people, and because of that, we provoke you to move your arm upon us with discipline and sanction. We readily acknowledge our absolute need for your Holy Spirit to lead us into the path of holiness and righteousness, and we ask that he would do just that. We are grateful that you, Lord Jesus, went to the cross to plant the gospel seed of worldwide blessing, and we are a living testimony to that faithfulness here 2,000 years later, and in that we rejoice. I pray this and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.